George Michael rose to fame as a member of the pop duo Wham! with their first two albums reaching number one with hit singles including Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and Last Christmas. Now with us today is Simon Napier-Bell, who managed Wham's career, helping establish them as a global act and the driving force behind their groundbreaking Beijing concert, the first visit to China by a Western popular music act, which generated worldwide media coverage. Now, the real George Michael is by far the most definitive feature documentary on George Michael's amazing life. The film explores the many ups and downs of the Grammy Award winner. Considered one of the best-selling musicians of all time, with sales of over 120 million records worldwide. Now, the film documentary dives deeper into who George really was, a kind and generous person who ultimately fought many demons while being front and center as one of the most famous musicians of his time. Well, Simon Napier-Bell is a rock manager, author, and filmmaker. He's managed the likes of the Yardbirds, T-Rex in Asia, Sinead O'Connor, and of course... Wham! and George Michael, just to name a few. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our very special guest, Simon Napier-Bell, to the show. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Ward. That's quite a build-up. I, I hope I can do it justice. Well, I believe that you can, and I, I really want to kind of kick this off. Why did you decide to direct a documentary on George Michael? Well, making films is what I've been doing the last five, ten years. And, and it's my background. My dad was a documentary film director, so, so in my bones, I, I felt guilty that I deserted to the music industry for 30, 40 years. Um, and why, George? Look, uh, you know, when you're a manager, I mean, you, you, I come from a quite a good background. I had a good education. You sometimes sit down and think, I could have been a, a politician or a scientist or a doctor or a television presenter. Uh, and, I, and I spent my love managing rock groups. Have I wasted my time? And often you think, yep, I really have. And then an artist comes along and you say, no, you know, this, this is really why I've done it. For an artist as good as this, um, you know, art is an essential part of, of society. You know, it reflects back on ourselves. We need it. And so when you're dealing with a great artist, you feel, yeah, you could very, very well worth life. So I felt that about George. And when he died, I saw these other documentaries which came out and they were all terrible. And they all had those loud commentaries where the commentator says, and then George thought, you know, and you think, how do they know what George thought, you know? So I wanted to make a film where all the people who knew him and worked with him and loved him and sometimes argued with him came and talked. And no commentary, it's just strung together from what they say. Well, how did you come across Wham? And what did you see in them to become their manager? You know, we have a show in the UK called Top of the Pops. It's, it's, there's nothing comparable in America. It doesn't exist now, but it did then. It had a, a viewership of 18 million. That's all teenagers. There's probably only 22 teenagers in England. So 18 million is like, you know, everybody. And it was the show of the week. To, to kids, it was a news show. It's what's happening in the world. But it was all music. And uh, George and Andrew made a record with Wham! It went out. It wasn't a hit. They suddenly lost their confidence. So oh, we're not the big stars we thought they were. And they put a second record out and it crept up the charts, but it didn't get high enough to get a Top of the Pops. And then 24 hours before Top of the Pops one night, they got a phone call, says somebody's dropped out. You're the next highest in the chart. Could you do it? And, you know, they had this big ego. They weren't surprised. They'd always felt they were going to be stars. So they had practiced and practiced and practiced just in case this could happen. And they went on the show and they performed just unbelievably. I mean, everybody, those 18 million people who watched it that night all said the next day, wow, 
who were they? The confidence and the brashness and the and the really good root dance routine, which of course they've been working out in their bedroom for a year. Um, and I was one of the people who saw it. And I said, I've never seen a, a first top of the pops as good as that. I want to, I want to manage this group. Well, how did uh, you get them out of their record contract that their first oh, that, contract that, produced no money? Well, that was later. I mean, first I had to persuade them I, I would manage them, you know. Uh, and, then, and it was very interesting because on television you saw like this duo. It's like a, a Hollywood bromance, you know, like, like Butch Casting the Sundance Kid or, or Starsky and Hutch, these two guys who were so close with each other out looking for girls and things, and like twins. But then when they came to the house to meet me, they walked in the door and they were the very opposite of each other. The, the guy you saw on television, the two guys you saw on television were actually Andrew, doubled. George had, had copied Andrew, you know, to learn how to be a, uh, a person on stage and have a personality on stage. Uh, but the brains, the, the business brains was George. So when they sat down in my room and talked, I thought, this is amazing because you've got one who's giving you all the imagery and the style and the, and the currentness and the other one who knows, you know, what it's about and where he wants to go. And it just was the perfect duo. And so I, I say snap them up. They had to snap me up. I mean, they had to decide, or George had to decide I was the right person, but fortunately he did. And then they said to me, we have a little problem. We have to get out of our record company. Wow. Well, if you've just had your first hit, because Top of the Pops immediately drove that record to being a hit. If you've just had your first hit, the worst thing you could ever do in this music industry is to fight with your record company. You're just about to happen. And I said, no, this isn't a good time. They said, you've got to. Well, we didn't do it straight away. They went on, they had two more hits, but it was a terrible, terrible contract they signed. They got no royalties. I mean, they, the, there was this clause in the contract that there would be no royalties paid on 12 inch singles. But in the eighties in UK, 12 inch singles was all that sold. Uh, they were extended versions of hit songs. They were you know, boosted out to be from three minutes to five. And they were pressed on colored vinyl with pictures and things. And they sold millions. So there was George and Andrew as well, was selling seven, eight, 10 million albums. Instead of getting seven, eight, 10 million pounds, they were going home on the tube every night and hadn't even got the money for a new t-shirt. <laughs> so they had, they had to be got out of this contract. So that was my first major job. Uh, well, and, and, we, and we did it. I mean, it was, it was a tough job to do. We had to go to court and fight with them. Eventually we signed with, with CBS. And then the second major job is, is having told me that, <laughs> George then fixed me with a steamy eye and said, and you've got one year to make us the biggest group in the world. And I just laughed. I said, look, the biggest group in the world has to be the biggest group in America because America is 60% of the world market. And no one's cracked America ever out of the UK in less than three years. Even the Beatles took four years. It's impossible. There's no top of the pops in America. There's no national TV of that type. There's no national newspaper. There wasn't, you know, USA Today didn't exist in those days. In, in UK, you can get a headline in a Daily Mirror or the Daily Mail, and you know everybody in the country reads it. In, in the USA, not. I said it's impossible, and he said, "Well, that's the deal." So I said, "All right, we'll, we'll have a try." We're... And then my, my my partner, I had a partner who was also managing them, and he uh, we drank a lot of wine. We, this was at dinner, and um, and then he said, "Do you know what? Maybe we could make you the first Western pop group ever to play in China. That would have you on the news all over the world." And George said, yeah, I like that. Go and do that. <laughs> well, you know, that was really my, my next question because George was very driven. Very. Um, and 
Was his idea of fame, I mean, he really, everything he put his mind to, he succeeded at. And then here you are setting them up to perform a concert in China. How much red tape did you have to go through to make that happen? Well, it's not just red tape. I mean, um, here you've got a country who's completely closed. They didn't allow any, you couldn't even get a visa to go to the country unless you're officially invited by the government and traveling with a business group approved by the government, which means it probably had left-wing affiliations. And uh, I was going to go and see if I could get this group, this Western group, who represented everything which China disliked, you know, prosperity and, and youth who were not controlled or disciplined. Um, what was I doing? What was I thinking? But I love Asia, so I, and, and I couldn't even get a proper visa. I called the embassy. They said, no, you have to wait seven months for a visa. So I flew to Hong Kong where I had a friend, and he said, if you go and see my friend Lee Pru, and he's up the stairs in the, that little alleyway there, and third office on the left, and you pay him you know, 200 Hong Kong dollars, and he'll give you a little thing to put in your passport. And then if you go on the train to Guangzhou, when you get to Guangzhou, you go to the left-hand entrance gate, and you make sure that Mr. Quan B is on, on duty. And if he's not, you wait there till he comes on duty and you show him the bit of paper and he'll let you, let you in. So finally, there I was in Guangzhou by myself, illegal, spoke no Chinese. And uh, next job, how do I get Wham into China? Well, only one person is going to be say yes, and that's Lee, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who is the president of China, perhaps the second or third most important person in the entire world. That was quite an 18 months. I went there every month for 18 months and slowly, 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 slowly worked my way out until one day, yes, he said, come, come next week. Well, what were, so when they did the concert, what was the crowd's reaction like? Well, you know, the crowd didn't know who Wham were or anything about them. You know, when, when we finally were invited or told we could come, uh, all the Western press said, why, why Wham? And I said, because they're huge, you know, their albums sold millions, they've taken off in China. And then I thought, wow, they're all going to come to the concert and they're going to see that the audience don't know who this group is. And, um, and so when the tickets were put on sale, I, I had a cassette made of all Wham songs sung in Mandarin and Chinese on one side of the cassette and the other side, it was the Wham versions. And we gave that away with the tickets. And then I realized, everyone was going to sell them because the tickets were quite expensive by Chinese standards. I mean, when I say quite expensive, you know, they, they were about eight cents, you know, but that was a lot. Um, so I gave, we gave two cassettes away with every ticket. And um, very reassuringly, in the next day, I saw some of them being sold in the market. So I thought, yes, this, this is going to do a little bit of good. I don't know how much, but they didn't really. When the concert started, there was an audience there of people who'd never seen a Western rock group or pop group. When George clapped his hands, on the beat, they thought he wanted applause, so they all politely applauded, and nobody stood up or danced or anything. But as the concert progressed, there were probably 18,000 or 16,000 audience, there were probably a thousand foreign kids, you know, children of diplomats and people who were working in Beijing, and they all started to behave as you behave at a, at a pop concert. And then the, the Chinese, the Chinese gifted began to copy them and enjoy it. and. Um, the Chinese, you know, authorities didn't like it. I mean, they didn't like kids jumping up and dancing. It was, they, it was everything they feared, but it also gave them everything they wanted because the way I persuaded them to take Wham and what I'd done for 18 months, I, I contacted politicians, was to tell them that youth culture, all over the world we see youth culture as the most subversive, the most, 
the most likely thing to undermine uh, the status quo of a government is youth culture. You have student riots, you have student opinions. And I said, if, you, if, the, if you're seen to invite a representative youth culture, a number one pop group, the world will believe you're really opening up at last and investment will flow in. And uh, I persuaded them. And so they invited them. And sure enough, in the next 10 years, they got, I mean, Beijing was built on money which came from the world believing that China were totally opening up. So the WAN concert really, really did a lot. Um, well, but that, that, was my that was my persuasion with the government. I wasn't interested in any of that. My idea was to get them into America, number one, inside that year that George had given me. So my objective wasn't the objective I was giving the government in China. So we both, we both achieved our ends. Well, it wasn't a year, but we played a stadium tour in America six weeks after the Beijing tour. It was within two years. Not, not bad. George forgave me for being a year late. Well, you know, it's funny because I'm surprised that you haven't been an ambassador by now. <laughs> well, ambassadors are bound by a lot of diplomatic rules and propriety, which I'm not very good at. Well, I think you're pretty good when it came to getting Wham! into China. And it's, it's funny because, like you said, both sides won. And here you bring Wham! into China and it literally opened the door to America, which is, well, like when, you said, when, was the main they, goal. When they came out on stage, this is the stadium which holds, I think I said 16, it's 14 or 16,000. But the downstairs, the, the first half, the front half of the downstairs, which would normally hold 6,000 seated people, was only television, film crews, and photographers and journalists. 300 film crews were there. And we knew, as soon as I saw that, I said, I know we've done it. And that's going to be everywhere in the world next week. I mean, Wham! are suddenly the most famous group in the world. And of course, that coincided with having two very good records out, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go and Careless Whisper. So we sort of knew at that moment we'd, we'd pulled this off. So there, are, I was excited because, you know, we'd done what we set out to do. Well, and both. the Chinese were, Chinese were very apprehensive. They saw the reaction, thought, what have we done? But then the investment rolled in. And you go to Beijing today and look at it. That was built post-WAM. Yeah, Before there you Wham, go. We can thank you for that, right? <coughs> Not really. There was a few other things, too. But um, it certainly was a, it was a, you know, if you, when WAM went to China, there was only one Western-type hotel in the whole of Beijing which was uh, the Sheraton. And that was a brand new hotel built in anticipation of what might come. I mean, they wanted a place where foreigners could go. And it was built with uh, spy cams and, you know, all the rooms were bugged because they wanted to know what the foreigners were doing. Um, 10 years later, I think in China, Beijing had become like New York or Munich. I mean, it's the most modern city you're going to find anywhere now. Well, you know, so it did yeah, and see, Andrew and George, they were extremely uh, camera friendly. I mean, they were both good looking. They knew how to work the camera and the camera just loved them. And to me, it was a perfect fit for them to they go to Beijing. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, they're really, you know, they were um, absolutely dedicated to becoming what they wanted to be, to being stars. Um and, and George had a longer term plan. I mean, George really was dedicated to uh, where he was going to get to, you know, which was to, to, Wham would come to an end and he'd go on to be a solo artist. He had it all planned out. There were going to be five number ones with Wham and then he'd stop Wham. Wham was a teenage group and he felt that 
when you stop being teenagers, you should stop being a teenage group. You shouldn't go on sort of you know, into old age, standing as a boy group. Um, and so he had it really plotted out. And the wham period, at least, had to be, they had to be there for it. I mean, they were always, they, did, they never complained. They did every interview. They were always there for the cameras. Oh, they complained privately. I mean, to me, they'd complain. But to the journalists, you know, they say to me, who's this bastard? And then they turn around and smile at the journalists nicely. Well, you know, as I was watching the documentary, um, there's a couple of things that stood out in the transition from Wham to his solo career. He had made the comment, uh, I, I remember in the documentary, he is standing there with a film camera, I mean, with a, with a camera, like a Canon or an Icon, uh-huh. in, in China, and his voiceover says he felt trapped, but he knew what he really wanted. And I know that when Careless Whisper was released as a solo record, but on the record label, it read Wham! featuring George Michael. What was the idea behind separating George from Wham! with that song? Well, it was the other way around. It was a George Michael solo single in the UK. And the American, the, the first two or three hits they had in the UK were not really hits in America. And so the first big hit in America was Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. And Killer Whisper was the next single. Now in the UK, there'd been three, four singles, time for a George Michael single, a, 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 a slight twitch towards what was going to come later. You know, George Michael would be a solo artist. But in America, it was too soon. After one single by Wham, you can't suddenly put out and the next single was by somebody else. So they, they made that one by Wham, featuring George Michael. So it was a compromise with what we were doing in the UK. But the concept always was from George, um, Wham will be two or three years, and when we hit 2021, it's time to stop being a, a youth group and be a, a grown-up group, an adult group. And he had that in mind. And then there was another single during the Wham time, which was Different Corner, which was incredible angst oh it was so sort of uh, inward looking and sad and desperate and what was extraordinary is both before and after that single were wham singles which were the same uplifting freedom came before it the age of heaven came afterwards you know that he he was able to to delve into himself and be sad and morose and introspective and then come back and be wham again i mean he was he was quite an amazing guy well, you know, a different corner was a fantastic video, but so was Careless Whisper. I mean, Careless Whisper. I mean, the camera. I mean, he knew how to use the camera, and you actually show in the documentary how he was so precise in the angle in which the camera filmed him, and the oh. way that they had to custom design the camera so he could literally look through the lens and at least see what direction or what angle he was at. I thought, you know, his aim for perfection paid off. It was amazing. He he was very untrusting of other people. You know, it, it took a lot to say to George, okay, it's in your hands, you do it. He never quite did. One or two people, Chris Porter, the producer who was in the film, uh, eventually George would say, yep, I know Chris will get it right. You know, I'm, I'm happy, let Chris do it. But still only up to a point. You know, that George would say to Chris, go out the studio, I'm going to go through the tapes and choose the, the best, you know, the best vocals and things. Um, and yeah, the film thing, 
he said he couldn't he couldn't film unless he could see himself in the camera nowadays you can have this digital so nowadays next to the camera you can put a digital screen you can watch yourself you couldn't in those days it was all done on film and so they invented this little gadget which they put on top of the lens and he could look into it from where he was standing and see what was coming out um, you know why it's because like so many kids he'd learned to be a star when he was eight or nine years old standing in front of the bedroom mirror and and when you learn in front of the bedroom mirror you need the bedroom mirror the rest of your life and um, it's difficult to give it up and so that cameraman that director of that video had to find a way of putting the bedroom mirror on front of the camera and then george perfect well there you know i noticed that in the first uh series of music videos with george being by himself careless whisper different corner where the he would literally face the camera full i mean literally just looking right at the camera and he he not only knew how to work it but he is one of the very few artists and i and i interview so many recording artists but he is one of the very few that doesn't matter what song he is singing he is singing with such emotion that he draws a listener in and like you said you know, you could feel happy if he's happy and you could feel sad and depressed if he is sad and depressed mm. and delivering that song. You know, he was living this every song he was singing. Actually, in, in the film, that's what Stevie Wonder says. He said what he loved about George was when he was happy, you, you felt the joy. And when he was sad, you were, you were as miserable as he was. <laughs> he did. I mean, you know, he, he was an actor. I mean, great actors, great actors do. Uh, a lot of pop stars have that. I mean, he's not, he's not unique, but he's one of very, very few. And, oh, very, and he, very, very few. And, and I noticed that he even did that because I, I sat, I, I sat down and wa rewatched um, all of the videos oh. from Wham to George Michael. And George just had that sense. He had the sense of the song. He had the sense of the camera. I mean, the lighting, the look, um, did he go, actually go, direct go, most of those by himself? Yeah, but go back to that first Top of the Pops I talked about when he came on, never been in front of a camera in his life, and he and the group projected exactly that same way right at the beginning, which is what I saw that very first time. How does this guy do this? He's, he's thought about it for years. Um, and he had that from the beginning, but of course he got better and better and better at it. Um, yeah. He, he never, he always knew that if you're in front of the camera, there's, there's no compromise. And, and this, is, this is what I try to teach every single artist. There isn't a good day and a bad day. There is success and failure. You never, no record is an in-between. You have a hit or you have a miss. And everything you do as a music artist is like that because it's real life. Actors are different. They go to the studio and they act a character. If they play it badly, you have another take. Music stars come out of their house in the morning they've got to be there as they come out the door as they really are if they've got a fake image if they're faking it it's got to be fake 24 hours a day there's no respite well, which is you... why no go ahead well, I, I i i really try to persuade artists to have as near to the real character image as possible because they go mad otherwise I and mean, they're permanently faking it so find their real character get as close to it as possible and project your real self when I was watching um, Careless Whisper, it's it's a perfect example because the camera just zeroed in where 
His whole face is on screen. And I sat there and I paused it. I said, wait a minute. I've seen this before. And then it was Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You. And I was like, oh. And then I find out you managed her. And I'm thinking. <laughs> Sinead, Sinead had exactly the same thing. She knew that uh, there's no point going halfway. If you're singing a song about being sad, you can't just toss it off and say, well, I'm feeling okay today. I'll just sing this song quickly. You've got to get there. And do it. But it's what every actor knows. And we talked about other great singers. Frank Sinatra did exactly the same. You know, oh yeah. Whatever whatever song he sang, you were in the same mood as that as the lyrics of that song, and one yeah. or two other artists. But most of the boy groups don't do that, and even the Beatles never did that. They mm -hmm. had a way of singing a really sad song with a sort of nonchalant throwaway, as if as if. I mean, it, it, it's also very it's a very good thing to do because it it suggests that life is sad and we have to deal with it. And it's a different sort of thing altogether. But George, you know, if you're sad, if he feels sad, the song is sad. You're going to feel sad too. That's what he wants. And he did it. He did it. Now, I understand. And as I was watching the documentary, and you bring up the final Wham! concert at Wembley. Was it the last Wham! concert, or was it George Michael's first solo concert? You know, it was George Michael's first solo concert. And nobody knew he was going to do that. And at the rehearsal three days before, which is at the Brixton Academy, which is a big theater, he didn't do it. Uh, and it was an extraordinary thing to do. But he said, I'm, I'm going to start the show. I'll, I'll walk out on stage and just do a little across the stage. But he walked out on stage and did it for three minutes. I mean, he went down this enormous long catwalk and back again and across the stage and the other catwalk back. Three minutes is a very long time. It's an entire song normally. And that was just George. And all he was doing is walking. I mean, you know, it, it made you think of all the great bottles you know who, you know it, it was catwalk inference no, no there's no question about it you know um he, he'd been watching models and he said i'm going to go on the catwalk and do what those girls do and um not in an effeminate way but a very masculine way but he was doing exactly that well he, he he commanded the stage he literally took control of it but and... i mean not 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 singing not saying a word just walking waving his butt a bit clapping his hands uh, he probably could have gone another three minutes. I mean, it was it was extraordinary. And uh, you looked at that and said, this is the beginning of George Michael's solo career. It was the end of Wham!, but that became secondary. Well, you know, George never missed a beat going from Wham! to going solo, and it looked like the, it was a seamless transition, was it? Uh, to a degree. I mean, we'd, we'd already arranged, while well, Wham! was still in progress, we'd arranged the duet with Aretha Franklin, which he recorded while Wham was still going on. Uh, that came about, I was at the uh, American Music Awards in Los Angeles uh, when he was there to receive an award for best video for Keller Whisper. And uh, <clears throat> Clive Davis was in the lobby and we, hello, and greeted each other. And, uh, and Clive was with Whitney and Clive said, hey, why doesn't your artist do a duet with Whitney? You know, Whitney smiled and I see that. You know, and uh, I didn't want to say this in front of her, so I took Clive aside and I said, he could do, I said, but think how much more credible it would be if it was with Aretha. And Clive's eyes lit up. He said, wow, that's right, too. Let me call her tomorrow. And so that was how that was fixed. So even while Wham was going on, we had this duet with Aretha arranged so that when Wham finished, it was obviously going to be quite a seamless transition to being a solo artist. Well, 
I understand that with the recording with uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, she never looked at George in the studio when they sang the song. Do you know why? She did. No, it's just, she's very nervous. I mean, it's so strange when you when you talk about great artists, and it's not the first person I've done that. You look at these artists, and they have such such charisma and such bravura, and they go on stage and they sing to millions, and then you find out they're really shy, and when Aretha sang in that video, she, she wouldn't look at anybody. She wouldn't look at the camera. She wouldn't look at the director. All she would do is look at her friends. She brought three limousines of friends with us. She had 18 friends there. And wherever they were standing, they looked. she looked at them. You know, I was singing to you. And so the cameraman had to rush the camera around wherever the friends were. He rushed around behind the friends that so looked like she was singing into the camera. Um, but it's surprising how many artists have this shyness that they don't really have an ability to um, to connect in the way you think they do. They're doing it on stage because that's quite a vague look, isn't it? You're looking into 20,000 people. You don't have to be too specific. But when you get them in a room, they find it much more difficult. But it's not true she didn't look at George. She didn't look at the camera. And when they sang, when they sang the ad libs, they did sing them exactly. George says this in the film. You know, ad-libs are usually sung separately, different late times later on. They're all dropped in by the producer. No, they sang the ad-libs together, either side of the microphone. They did look at each other. They got on well. Well, and it looks like they did. And that song is that song today is still as timeless as the day that it debuted on the radio. Mm. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, even even I mean, even all of George's songs from the early to the very end, his songs are still timeless. I mean, you know, if George, if George Michael hit the radio today for the very first time, the song would fit 2023. What, what makes it timeless, Ward? Because, you know, that wasn't his song. This was that besides Simon Climbing. Um, is it his performance which makes this timeless? Or, or had he simply picked a song which was close enough to the type of song he, he liked and he wrote? I don't know. Well, now, one of the things that put me in complete awe of George Michael is when um, you, sh you had the clip in the documentary of him explaining he's sitting down in a recording studio and he's creating a song line by line. He doesn't just go in there with a song already pre-written. He's sitting there and he's listening to every word and he sings the line uh he's like okay i need to hold that word a little longer or i need to to uh, change this and i was amazed that he his songwriting was more artistry than i'd ever seen anybody else ever explain their songwriting uh talent but his was on a whole nother level he he never wrote anything down and and no one who worked with him could believe it now it doesn't mean he hadn't worked on the lyric, but he'd worked on it in his mind and he remembered everything. You imagine if you go shopping, there's 30 things to buy and you don't write them down. You're going to come home with nothing you know, or all the wrong things. But he could write lyrics and store them in his brain like a filing cabinet. So when he went into a studio, he made a backing track or the producer would made the track with him. And then he got in front of the microphone, nothing written down, and he'd start singing. And in his mind, he probably had just the same as if it was written down. He probably had a set of possible lyrics. He'd try one out and he'd listen it back. And say, yeah, yeah, that's all right. That word's all right. That one's not so good. Um, change it, sing it again, but never wrote anything down. 
And it wasn't just the producer we have in the film. We talked to several other people and everyone was just amazed. They never saw George write anything down. And he wrote all his songs always in the car. And, and Kenny, his partner for a long time, said it was extraordinary because he'd never seen George rehearse. He went off to do these big shows like Live Aid and things like that. He never rehearsed. He went and sang with Paul McCartney at one show and he'd never rehearsed. And Kenny said, how, how could he go and sing that song before he hadn't even rehearsed it? But he did, he, in the car. George said, I'm going for a drive. That's when he sang, rehearsed, and wrote his songs. And later, when he lost his driving license because he had a little accident, there were no songs for a year. And people didn't really notice. They said, wow, George dried up. What's happened to his songwriting? And Kenny said to me, couldn't drive, couldn't write songs. That is... That is amazing. Um, you know, the only person that I can even think about in the way that they wrote songs and being very, very precise in arrangement was Michael Jackson. He lived with the beat in his head. Um, I don't even think he wrote things down. He'd walk into the studio, turn the tape on and do it. And he expected everybody to follow him to a T. And even in the documentary with George, the way that he would walk into a recording studio after a song is finished and then he tells the producer we need to do this to the song and the producer's like it's perfect and then george makes it even better <laughs> yeah he had that knack um yeah i mean it it he had he he's the only and better than michael jackson in this he's the only singer i i know who could produce himself better than anyone else. Well, not just better. I mean, he, he made Keller's Whisper first with Jerry Wexler producing, who was the great Atlantic producer, who produced Aretha. Uh, and I went with him to make that in Muscle Shoals. And we got back home and we said, it, it's not good enough. It's, it just doesn't have, it doesn't have that little magic touch which the demo had, which, which often happens with records. You know, the demos have a little something which should never be recreated. And George said, I'll make it again. And he never used a producer again after that, ever. You know, he figured if, if Jerry Wexler couldn't get it right, then producers are out the window. It's him from then on. So did, and so did y'all go well, to the, Alabama? I'm trying to think, well, who else ever produced themselves? Prince produced himself a few times, but was usually better when someone else produced him. Stevie Wonder produced Signed, Sealed, and Vivid. You've got to say, that's a great record. But that's probably the only one. And he went back to having a producer. George never went back. He just, that was it. He produced himself. And he knew his own voice just perfectly. He knew what would work and what wouldn't work. You know, I was surprised to hear that uh, that y'all had gone to Alabama. And I guess it was only based on the fact of all of the hit records that were coming out of that recording studio that George should record there. And I was surprised in the documentary that George was not satisfied with the way the, the record came out and redid it. Well, uh, well you know what happens? Jerry Wexter, everyone agreed he'd be great. I mean, George, and to that, until then, he'd been produced. So he was going to swap an English producer without much of a name for Jerry Wexter. Wow, I mean, one of the biggest producers in the world. And I knew Jerry from 1960s when I was in America. So off we went. Jerry said, do it at Muscle Shoals. Why not? Just who's, who's had hits from Muscle Shoals? Aretha Franklin, Percy Sledge, Man Loved a Woman, all these songs. Wow, you know, let's go there. Fantastic. And the band in Muscle Shoals studio is amazing. And they probably play on 50 or 60 top five records every year. So you think nothing could be better. But 
they do three sessions a day, probably three songs a session. So that's nine songs a day, 365 days a year, 3,000 songs a year, and they get 60 hits. So there's 2,940 songs, which are not hits. Now, they're not bad because they're an incredible group. But, you know, it does mean they're, they're, they're just a conveyor belt of brilliance, but there are the more and the less brilliant. And George needed Keller Swister to be the absolute best. And so you look at that, he had about a one in 20 chance of that happening, or one in 50 chance at Muscle Shoals. Um, if it had been, if it had been one of their magic ones, which must come out two or three a week, it would have been amazing, but it, but it wasn't. Nothing wrong with it other than it didn't, it didn't sparkle. Well, and, in well, in 1988, when the Faith album debuts and scores multiple number one hits, and he won many Grammys, and then he becomes an absolute international superstar. So how much pressure was George under now being this international superstar? I mean, it it's what he wanted, but did he understand what the trapping of fame was actually going to be? No, oh, he's a pretty shrewd guy. He may have understood it and thought he could deal with it. When when you're a major star, when when he left Wham, look, he knew he was gay and he knew he had to come out one day. I mean, probably until the end of Wham, he's sort of hoping maybe I'm not gay or maybe it's just a you know I'm a bit gay but not that. But by the end of Wham, he knew he was gay and the sort of the idea was in his mind, if I stop Wham, which is a very heterosexual image, the two you know Hollywood romance type thing. Um, I'll come out and I'll be free. I'll, I'll feel better. But of course, he was tempted by his ego. You know, he wanted to be as big as Madonna, wanted to be as big as Michael Jackson. So he thought, well, I'll put it off a bit. And it wasn't not knowing himself. It's just knowing that he, he also wanted something else, you know, even more than being truthful and honest about his character. And so he went into faith and created this even more heterosexual image, you know, the cowboy hat, the jeans and everything. And then if you're a major, major star and he took off instantly, you know, you are, you're two hours on stage every night. You have an audience, you have all the love and, and applause and affection. And then you in a limousine by yourself to a hotel room by yourself. And that's where you stay for 24 hours completely by yourself. Well, most people can deal with a three month tour. He did a 21 month tour completely alone every day by himself in a hotel room, no friends. Always before he'd had Andrew, fun, joking, you know, amusing each other. Now he was just alone. And I think it'd drive anybody mad. And on top of that, the fact that he's only 2021 20, and he's gay and can't come out and he has, I mean, when you're 2021, 20, having sexual relationships or relationships of any sort are pretty important, you know, he's just alone, like, like, like being in a box really. And it pretty much drove him mad. By the end of the Faith Tour, he was in a bad way. He didn't ever want to do this again. So he said to the record company, um, I, in the future, I don't want to do this. I, you know, and, and they, you know, record companies spend a lot of time and money making you into these big stars. They don't like to hear that what they've got isn't going to go on, you know. And um, there was a bit of an argument, to say the least. And George said, I'm not going to make any more videos. A, a hopeless, a hopeless hope. He was hoping if there were not videos, then the public wouldn't notice him so much. You know, they'd, they'd forget what he looked like. He could go out and go shopping and walk down the street. But once you've lost that, it never comes back. He'd lost his privacy. Um, but that was the main thing he had in mind. I wouldn't do any more videos. I don't want to do any more promotion. I want my face to become less known. I just want people to know my music. 
it was a hopeless, a hopeless thing to, to want. It was too late. Well, what but was that was the problem? Well, what was George's love hate relationship with fame as well as the media? Well, you know, artists all come from the same thing. They all come from a lack of love at some key point in their childhood when they needed it. Um, not always deliberate, but it's, something happens which, which you know, some circumstance or or bad person in the family or something causes them not to have that what they need as a child. And they spend the rest of their life looking for that. And that's why they need that fame. And, and some of them grow up and get very mature and almost overcome it, but they really overcome it altogether. Whatever happened then stays with them through their life. They want that admiration or affection from everybody. And they know it's stupid. I mean, they're not, you know, George is no silly person. He knew his own weakness and his own character. So he half didn't want it. I guess it's like a heroin addict. You, every day you want to give up. You just say, I've just got to have a bit more. You know, I'll do it tomorrow. And he half, you know, he half didn't want fame. And then, you know, he did want it. He, he didn't like it when nobody recognized it. it it's, it's not unique to him. Every artist I've ever managed has the same conflict within themselves. And um, so from the end of Faith onwards, he was struggling with that conflict. Up to then, he said, no, I want the fame. I'll do what's needed. From then on, he just didn't quite know how much he wanted it and how much he didn't want it. And it's a struggle. And in a way, he, he, that's when he became very charitable. He started giving away a lot of money. I think he felt that what he lost by not having the freedom to be a normal person and go into a supermarket or walk down the street, perhaps he got by connecting with people by giving money away to charitable things. Yeah, and we're, and we're going to get into that. And, um, you know, one of the things that was really highlighted in the documentary was George Michael wanting out of his uh, record contract with Sony. Uh, and it was brought up in the documentary that uh, there was a presumed gay slur by a Sony executive or the fact that Sony would own all of his songs forever. Um, and I believe Prince actually had the same problem uh, when it came to song ownership. Uh, but did George really know he was going to lose that case? I think so. Uh, you know, his boyfriend, Anselmo, the Brazilian guy he fell in love with, had just died... When people die, the first human reaction is anger, huge anger. You talk to anybody, or if you had anyone you loved who died, you get very angry. I mean, not, you don't know where it's, the anger is directed at, but you feel angry that this has happened. And at that moment, he was in quite a conflict with, with Sony about how the promotion should be done, and just, he just got very angry. So I'm going to sue them. I want to get out of the contract. I think, he's, I think from the first day of the court case on, he sort of knew he was going to lose. Here's the problem. There's a very strange and unfair thing in the music business is that when you make a record as an artist, uh, you pay the costs. The record company lends you the money, you make the record, but as the royalties come in, you repay them the money they've lent you. When you've repaid the money, they keep the record. They keep all the rights and they keep the ownership of it, ownership for life. Just like buying a house, you borrow the money from the bank, you pay, repay the bank and they say, no, we're keeping the house. You wouldn't feel very happy. And every artist suffers that. That's how the music industry functions and works. I think it's grossly unfair, but the music industry doesn't really know how to, <coughs> the music industry doesn't really know how, how to deal with it, how, how to change. It's such a fundamental thing in how it works. To change it is a rethinking of the whole way the industry operates. They, they own these copyrights 
and they can do what they want with them. And that's why they invest in the artist. Well, you bring so up that, that, well, well, I was going to say, that's what he fought the case on, you know, but the real reason wasn't that a case at all. The real reason he bought the case was he heard that one of the top executives at Sony had called him a limey faggot. And so really, I, I talked to his lawyer, who was my lawyer too, and I said, couldn't he fight the case on the basis that if you're signed to a 10-year contract, you should have the right to be treated with respect and not have the person who employs you call you a limey faggot. And I think in an English court, he would have won the case if he'd fought it on that basis. But lawyers are very careful people, as you know, and they said, no, there's no precedent for winning a case like that. We're going to have to fight it on, a, on something real and something legal. So they fought it on the basis of this uh, ownership of copyright. But the real reason was he was incensed that he could be employed for 10 years in a contract he couldn't get out of, and they could talk about him in that way. As I was watching the documentary and as it went on, I got the, the, the feeling mm. that, and like you said, George was angry, uh, you know, when his partner passed away. Um, which, like you said, is completely understandable. That you don't even have to be famous. You will be angry if you lose a loved one. Uh, he seemed, till the very end, that he always had this sense that he was trapped. He wanted to get out of a cage that I don't even think that he could actually define. Look, there's so many things in everybody which are uh, related to your upbringing, what's happened in the past, possibly genetic as well. Uh, you know, he, he, he'd had an uncle who committed suicide uh, and a lot of doctors and medical people will tell you that that sort of uh, bipolar suicidal uh, character runs in the family. And if, whether they're right or wrong, George believed too that it ran in the family, then he would feel that inevitably he was heading in the same direction. So it wouldn't really be a matter of right or wrong, it's a matter of what you intrinsically believe about yourself. So, so he did, there are a lot of things about George which, which trapped him. You could say he was trapped by himself, by, I mean, by his own character, but we all are, aren't we? And we, we are who we are. And luckily most of us um, find ourselves reasonably free of these oppressive inner subconscious thoughts, but some people aren't. And he was always in therapy, you know, from uh, I, I, when he had pneumonia in the um, first WAM tour, I introduced him to my doctor. And my doctor was one of the very, very few doctors in the UK who's both a medical doctor and a psychiatric doctor. And so he got to like George and George, he became George's shrink for the next 25 years. Um, and was incredibly helpful and helped George, you know, persevere with everything. But I think George always needed some sort of help in that way. And some people do and some people don't, but most artists do. I mean, that's, you have to remember that art is the symptom of mental unhealthiness. You know, if you're healthy, you don't, you're not an artist. You, you go out and get on with the world and join in. Artists shut themselves away and try to dig out the suffering inside them. And that's what we call art. It's true. How, and because you were so close to George, what did it truly mean to him that his father accepted him and was was very proud of him to see this massive international success? Well, of course, 
Here's, here's another thing which happens so frequently. 90% of artists, 90, 70 or 80%, but a huge number are what causes this angst or unrest or lack of affection in their childhood is a dispute with their father. So it's a huge, huge number of artists are driven to become artists because of uh, conflicts with their father. And then when they grow up, they like being artists and they all get used to their life. They know, they know they're a bit mentally screwed up, but you know, they also like being artists, they like being rich, they like being celebrity, um, they like their life. And then you, you need to thank your father for having that conflict with you, you know? And um, bit by bit by bit, he grew back to like his father, having had this huge conflict with him when he was young. And I think what really changed a lot was when, when his Brazilian boyfriend, Anselmo, died, he sat down and wrote a letter to his parents saying he was gay. He'd never told them. And it was a huge thing for him to do and a very difficult thing. And he knew his mother would be okay. He instinctively knew his mother and him had a wonderful relationship. But he was very surprised to find his father was absolutely okay too. And I think that surprised him. And perhaps it surprised his father to find out that he was okay. You know, he, you know, his father himself was probably surprised at not minding, but he didn't. His father ran a restaurant. His father was a very hardworking, successful Greek entrepreneur with a restaurant. You don't run a restaurant with having a few gay, having a few gay waiters. I mean, he's got to have been working with gay people all his life. You know, it couldn't have been any huge shock what a gay character is like. It's just that he'd hoped his son was going to be something else. But by then, George was a huge pop star earning millions of pounds. I think he could accept his son for what he was by then. Well, when, when George came out, what was the public's reaction at the very beginning? I mean, did they already kind of know or was it a complete shock? And, what, and how did the media uh, feel about you're, it? You're, you're, you would have been in America. No one in the UK. Oh, you, there's something, there's a difference between America and the UK in the way the public perceive famous people. Very few people in the UK are ever deceived by somebody's, somebody's saying they are okay. They, they normally see, you know, the, it was very interesting when Faith was so big in America, the fact the album Faith, and there were five number ones. It wasn't a big album in England. It wasn't, it wasn't a big album at all. And the Faith tour didn't even sell out in England. But when George came out, he then became as big in the UK and Europe as he had been with Faith in America. So there's, there's this need in European and UK audiences to have somebody being honest about themselves and open and everybody likes it. So when George came out, most UK, most people in the UK just thought, well, we always knew, you know, we always guessed or we always, always thought he was. And why shouldn't he be? I mean, you know, it's, gosh knows, it was, it was a time, you know, it had been legal in England for 40 years and we'd had, by then had, you know, probably uh, government ministers and people who were openly gay. So no, nobody was incredibly shocked and said, oh, this is terrible. In America, though, you, you were 10 years behind. I don't think anybody would be now or is now, but they were then. So he did lose the American market almost completely. But he gained the market, which in a way he wanted the most, which is his own home market. You know, that is very interesting. I have never heard that. And I'm really glad that you shared that uh, with us. And... I want to know, why did George pick a fight with Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> well, it, it, you know, he, he got more and more angry as he got older, you know, that um, perhaps, perhaps he felt the need to. Perhaps he felt a bit like me saying, you know, you, did I waste my life managing rock stars? Perhaps he was thinking, have I wasted my life 
writing so hits pop songs. Uh, and he looked at politics and he looked what went on in the world. And um, it was to do with Iraq and the Iraq war. And uh, I don't remember the exact basis for it. Um, and then he said, he said some, made some comment about the Murdoch and all the Murdoch newspapers supported the war and he didn't support the war. And then the Murdoch newspapers turned round and decided to get him. And you know they got, he had three major newspapers in the UK at that time. And so he instructed all his um, journalists to chase after and look up, look what George was doing, and follow him and dig up every everything which they could on him. You know, with any look, any major artist has a lot of little things in their life which are not particularly illegal, but which um, uh, which can be made to look bad to the public. If you smoke a joint, or you're rude to your girlfriend, or any little thing. And so every day there was something in the front of the paper about George. And um, so it became a big fight. And it, it really was a sort of fight to the death. Yeah, and I think, uh, I know that he was very close with Princess Diana. Uh, but at the same time, it was paparazzi day in and day out. I know that the, the UK uh, media is relentless. Uh, probably more so than the American media uh, when it comes to famous people, not just politicians. But I want to kind of turn this around to go after something positive because I know George's ups and downs with drugs, his arrests, they're all well documented. But I want to focus on his charity work. And George did his community service at Project Angel Food. What is the backstory with George and this charity? Well, he, he was living in LA for a long period of time. And Project Angel Food is, is a very good project. I mean, it started really when AIDS was at its peak, you know, in the, in the end of the 80s, when there was a huge number of people who had AIDS. And AIDS, people with AIDS were completely ostracized. I mean, the me this is why George didn't come out at that stage, because after the Faith album, he definitely planned, I'm now going to come out. And he did to his friends, so most of his friends knew he was gay. He just didn't want to do it to the media because the media in the late 80s, early 90s, pretty much said, if you're gay, you're going to die. You're going to have AIDS and you're going to die. And if you go near somebody with AIDS, you'll get AIDS. And so anyone who said they were gay was likely to be branded as potentially having AIDS and potentially being somebody, if you even go near them, you might catch it and die. It was a terrible hysteria. It lasted five or six years before you know people began to see sense and reason. And... Um, that was that was the moment when George was confronted with "Do I come out or not?" and and um, it was an impossible thing to think of doing at that time. Yeah, well, especially with uh, what Eddie Mercury passing away in nineteen ninety three. Well, I mean, Fre Freddie Mercury, you know, everybody knew he was gay, but but he never came out. Um, it, it's just you know you're going to lose your record company, you're going to lose everything. Um, it's a, it's a very different compromise. I think the more successful you get and the further you get with your career, the more confident you're going to be that um, I don't care. You know, let, let them throw me aside. I have the public. The public are still going to like me um, and I'll get by. But that period, 1990 to 1995, in the UK too, it was a hysterical anti-gay, anti-AIDS period and almost impossible to deal with except by just keeping your head down and not admitting it. So uh, where did George's generosity come from? Well, I, I think it started there. I think it started, think, he was thinking, look, I'm sorry, I was, your Angel, Project Angel Food. He was thinking, um, how do I help 
people in this terrible situation. You know, I'm lucky. I'm not going to loan up. I'm gay, but I'm, you know, I'm making lots of money and I can live a reasonably free life. And the charity which he liked the idea of most was Project Danger Food, which delivered meals to gay people who were not able to get to their house because they were crippled by AIDS. I mean, patients, AIDS patients who, who are virtually unable to walk, uh, who were probably not being treated. If they didn't have health insurance, they wouldn't have been treated. In the UK, they would. In, in America at that stage, they weren't even getting treatment. Uh, they had no money. They'd lost their jobs. They were ostracized. And Project Angel Food delivered meals to these people. And they didn't even call them patients. They called them clients. And they, it was almost like a restaurant delivering food as if you paid for it with politeness and respect. It was a wonderful charity. And so George donated money to it all the time. And then when he got caught in the toilet and he had to do uh, public service or whatever you call it, um, he said, I'll do it there. And he went off and helped them and enjoyed helping them. And they loved having him. And um, it, was, it was a very nice relationship. Well, what are some right. of the, the stories that uh, you heard and you saw firsthand of uh, George's, you know, him helping other people, but he would always tell them, don't tell anybody. Well, he, the first thing was when I was managing Wham, he donated all the royalties from last Christmas, which means he's still giving them because that's still a hit every single year. That all went to Ethiopia. He, he did say he was doing it then, but there was a huge, um, you know, was a huge amount of press about it. And I think he felt very, I think he felt very guilty at the time that he'd said that, that you know, that he'd done it publicly, that he felt he, he didn't want all that praise. And never again, everything else he did thereafter, when he gave to charity, it had to be private. You were not allowed to use his name. He gave an enormous amount. His biggest selling album, the greatest hits album, he gave all the royalties to the Terence Higgins Trust, which is an English charity for, to help people with AIDS. Um, he would sit and watch television and he'd see people on a talk show talking about some problem or, you know, my wife's still and we can't afford the operation. He'd just call up and say, here's the money. You're not allowed to say it's me. He did that day in, day out. I mean, he gave away millions and millions of pounds um, endlessly, and it had to be private. And I'm sure he benefited from it. I mean, because it's good for your heart, good for your soul. I'm mean, sure he felt good about it. But I don't think he was doing it with that in mind. He did it because he, um, <coughs> I think inside himself, he felt too that he needed help from people. I mean, you know, when you talked about how he had this inner, inner pain, inner angst. Um, so everybody who had a problem or maybe a financial problem or a medical problem, he felt a, a great empathy with. And really, he was able to help and he did. When he did the 25 Live Tour, Kenny, who was his boyfriend at the time, was given 25,000 pounds every single night to, to go ahead to the city where they were going to play and find a charity to donate that money to and invite everybody from the charity to come to the show. Um, that was a 70-day you know, tour, and he did that in every single city. Yeah, and I, and I saw that tour. The 20, that was the last time he, that he did a tour in America. It was a 25 Live. And fantastic tour. Now, where were you when you heard that George had passed away? <coughs> Excuse me, I cough. Hmm? Um, it was Christmas Day, of course, and I was having dinner by the river, candlelit dinner by the river in Sarawak, Borneo, a glamorous place to be at Christmas. 
uh, and I was sitting with my, my partner, my boyfriend of 30 years, and it was, um, and it was our, pretty much our 30th anniversary. We met on New Year's Eve. So this is a very special evening, lovely dinner by the river, candles, and suddenly on my phone flashes up uh, messages from journalists. I, I don't, my new, the news doesn't flash up my phone, so I didn't get the news, but I got messages. Can we talk to you at once? We must be And one of them said George Michael's died. So that's how I got the news, sitting at dinner, being messaged by English tabloid newspapers asking to interview me, which I refused to do. Um, and it spoiled my dinner, to be honest. <laughs> I would say so. Well, what is your greatest <laughs> single memory of George Michael? Oh, my gosh. Um, good arguments, because George was a great person to argue with, because you could never, ever win an argument with George. And so there were many, there were many moments I can't have one specific, but it was always when there was an argument and you had to find a way of both bowing out gracefully because you were not going to win and he wasn't prepared to lose. George had this thing. He said, if you don't agree with what I'm telling you, it's because you're not listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's because his confidence level was so high. Yeah, and and he and, was and, and, and he was idealistic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, an artist has to have a great confidence level because the real thing is they're all lacking in confidence and have huge confidence. It's this huge swing, non-stop swing from super high to very low, and most of the time it was high and needs to be and should be, or you're not going to be a major artist. Um, but it could be exasperating when you said. You know, you don't agree, it's because you're not listening. You knew very well it, he wasn't agreeing with you because he wasn't listening. So those were the great moments. They were fun. I like a good argument, and he was the best person to argue with. Well, you know, you, your documentary, ladies and gentlemen, the real George Michael, you have to see it. Everybody on planet Earth is a fan of George Michael. They're a fan of Wham!, uh, there, there's a great documentary on Wham out now, but you have to follow it up. You, you got to go deeper. And Simon uh, Napier Bell brings us the real George Michael, and you see it all. And you just, you know, you you you've brought well, you've brought him back to life for all of his fans, Simon, and. Uh, the documentary is extremely well done. And, um, and even for me, I, I had to go, you know, it caused me to go back, not with just doing the research for our interview, but to go back and re-listen to all of those songs, but then listen to them in a whole different way and, and watch the videos uh, with a new eye. And, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you have to remember George Michael, the artist, the singer, the songwriter, um, a man with a huge heart to give. That's the George Michael we need to remember. And Simon, you brought that forth in an, in an incredible film. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, you can watch The Real George Michael right now. It is streaming on multiple streaming platforms. So take it from me. Uh, I watch these things all the time for this very reason to tell you to watch them. And if you're a George Michael fan, and like I said, everybody on planet Earth is a George Michael fan and you're going to enjoy it. 
And Simon, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to be on the show and to, to share your stories uh, about George Michael and Wham. Well, my pleasure. No one nicer to share them with than you. Well, thank you so much. And ladies and gentlemen, well, again, the real George Michael film documentary. It is the one to watch. And as for me, I'll see you next time.